It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, Joe Biden has warned Boris Johnson not to put peace in Northern Ireland at risk in pursuit of Brexit. The US president-elect used his first official call to the Prime Minister to reaffirm his support for the Good Friday Agreed agreement. It's the latest sign that Biden won't be the unequivocal backer of Brexit, of course, that President Trump has been. Yes, and we did get those early warnings from Joe Biden before his uh, election day around the Good Friday Agreement, around the internal market bill. We'll discuss all of that in a minute. The other story we've got to talk about is the government's new finance law. It's bringing in its new investment law, giving powers to intervene in foreign takeovers if it deems them a threat to national security. It's also going to have, and this is crucial, a retroactive action on deals that complete after the bill's publication so the government can take action on anything that it comes in after that becomes law and that's controversial uh, some say it will defer, deter investors others make the point that this is in line with similar rules that we have in france italy and germany well let's bring in tom tuganat chair of the commons foreign affairs committee conservative mp for tunbridge and molling tom welcome to the program thank you so much for being with us um we'll talk about many of these things but first of all let's just talk about that call between joe biden and boris johnson we have the readout of course do you think that this is significant, that uh, that Boris Johnson has spoken now, obviously, to Joe Biden, one of the first leaders to do so, and that the Northern Ireland issue is being flagged as being something that needs attention? So, look, I have to say, this is uh, it's a bit of a non-story. U.S. president speaks to U.K. prime minister. It's kind of what they do and have done for about 100 years pretty frequently. So I'm, I'm glad it's happened, but it's hardly a surprise. And the idea that uh, uh, such a prominent member of the Irish-American community, somebody who was so active in supporting the peace process in Northern Ireland and actually across the whole of the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland, uh, mentions the Good Friday Accord, is again uh, not exactly a surprise. This is something that he's done before. And by the way, I'm very glad that he has, because the Good Friday Accord brought peace to the people of the United Kingdom. There were bombs in Warrington, in Guildford, and of course many in London and even in Deal in Kent. So, you know, this has been a hugely important moment uh, for the UK, and I'm glad that he's going to stand up and defend it. 
Tom, good to have you. I suppose the, the significance is uh, because of that previous mention of it and how it might prejudice a US trade deal if the Good Friday Agreement is put into threat. Um, d- does Boris Johnson need to think about dropping this IM bill quietly now? I mean, it was clearly uh, brought about, or at least those clauses in it were clearly brought about uh, because of the Brexit talks. And now we've got even John Major among its critics. Uh, is it time to, to slip this away quietly and move on? Well, look, there are many of us who uh, didn't believe that those sections were necessary because actually the existing uh, withdrawal agreement uh, gives the emergency powers, should they ever be necessary anyway, uh, which is why some, including me, didn't vote for those clauses, although supported the bill overall. Uh, you know, uh, the, Lords, the House of Lords has uh, rejected those clauses, so-called Section 5, and, I, I, you know, let's see what the government comes back with. But the reality is that if we get an agreement, then they're not necessary anyway. Uh, and so, uh, with any luck, we'll get an agreement in the next few days or weeks, and this will disappear as an issue. Well, yeah, I mean, as you say, with luck, we might be in that position. But do you get that sense, which I'm certainly hearing from people in Brussels, that perhaps the boot is on the other foot now because you have someone in Washington who is clearly opposed to Brexit and it pushes Boris Johnson perhaps to make more concessions than he would otherwise have done? Well, look, I don't, I don't think the, you know, this is one of those moments where the boot is on either foot, if you like. Uh, you know, if we get an agreement, it's good for both. If we don't, it's bad for both. Uh, and frankly, I think getting an agreement is absolutely essential in the role of uh, the British Prime Minister and the role of the, uh, you know, the, the, the leader of the European uh, negotiation team is to get a deal. That is literally their prime job. If they don't, it is a huge failure of statecraft on both their parts. Uh, and would be an extremely uh, bad start to the next chapter in the UK's relationship uh, with the wider world. But it would also be a hell of a statement of the way that the European Union uh, is working. So, I mean, if the priority then is to get a deal, should the UK think about conceding on something like fishing, which after all economically is very insignificant in the grand scheme of things? Well, look, I, I think that there's, uh, it's quite clear that we're getting to the point where fishing is uh, less of an issue in the sense that the, the, the route through that is becoming uh, increasingly clear. But the real uh, obstacles are to do with uh, how we regulate uh, supervision of each other's uh, state support and things like that. Now, look, I hope very much that the government will lean into those uh, talks, and I hope that the European Union will show the flexibility that it can show. Uh, not hasn't always, but it can. Um, and, and let's see where we, where we get to. But I think this is uh, this is one of those moments where, you, you know, you get to a crunch point because, of course, it's only at the end of the talks that the real issues, the t- tricky issues, come up. After all, if they'd been easy, you'd have solved them already. So it's hardly surprising you get to a crunch point at the end. But now this is where, you know, this is why the prime minister has paid pop star wages and why uh, why Michel Barnier is fated on the shoulders of giants. You know, this is this is exactly what they're there to do: get a deal. I'm not sure many pop stars will be happy with Boris Johnson's money. But anyway, um, Tom, let's uh, talk about um, something else entirely, which is the investment bill that's going through the Commons at the moment, of course. Uh, This powers to intervene in foreign takeovers if there's a threat to national security. Some of those powers being retroactive. A lot of people said, well, we can see where this is coming from. The word Huawei is written all over it. But isn't it in the end going to deter investment in the UK? Well, look, I don't think this is just about Huawei. I think this is about much more than that. And no, it shouldn't deter investment. In fact, done right, this should actually encourage investment. Because what it will do is it will encourage people to invest not just in uh, British business, but actually in British uh, skills and, uh, you know, skills from, uh, knowledge, from the knowledge economy and also in individuals. Because what it will do with any luck is it will create a uh, much greater climate of investment and support 
uh, that will allow businesses to become, become very much a virtuous circle uh, within certain clusters in the UK. And I think that's really important. But the second reason this is important is because we are about to go through, sadly, a severe recession, probably, uh, around the world because of the COVID uh, pandemic. And that's very likely to put uh, state-owned enterprises with a huge advantage over private uh, sector businesses because of the amount of debt available to them. If you are a state-owned enterprise, after all, you can call on the nation-state's debt market. And therefore, uh, countries that use state debt in order to fund acquisitions will be at a huge advantage in making sure that we have um, industry and, 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 and commerce afterwards is going to be extremely important. And that's why we've got to be careful about how we uh, open our markets. And by the way, this just brings us into line with the United States, with the European Union, with Australia. So I think this is a very sensible precaution. Um, I mean, Tom, the general thrust of this bill is to build upon the powers that exist under the Enterprise Act. Uh, I was interested to learn that there have only been 11 interventions on national security grounds since that law came in in 2002. Are, are these extra powers really needed when it seems like what we already have is not being used as much as it perhaps could be? So, uh, look, first of all, I think your criticism of the use of the Enterprise Act is entirely valid and, uh, and it's something that I've raised. But this goes a bit further. And the, the reason this goes further is, you know, many people have been calling for this, including me, is because we're seeing uh, a growing pattern of uh, uh, softer takeovers that result in, a, in an IP and then a, a, a full transfer to uh, a different market. Yet, of course, a lot of focus has been on Shenzhen and on China, but actually some of us are looking at other, uh, other firms and other purchases as well. So there's actually quite a lot here that I think needs to be looked at, and I'm very glad that the government's been bringing forward this bill. Tom, let me talk about China with you briefly, because you'll be aware, I'm sure, of the changing rules from Beijing on who can be in the legislature in Hong Kong, and the many opposition legislators have now stood down in protest at this clause that people have to be loyal, they have to be judged on loyalty and patriotism. What's your view generally on where this is progressing? Well, look, I have to say, the, the, the tragedy of Hong Kong over the last few years, really since the, uh, since the latter stages of uh, General Secretary Xi's administration in Beijing, is that we're seeing uh, the erosion of the rights that were guaranteed under the Good Friday Accord. We're, we're seeing the end of the one country, two uh, systems, uh, system of government. And, and in many ways, we're seeing a lesson for uh, other areas like uh, Taiwan, which were sort of given the impression that they may be able to you know, rejoin or stay in the, the, the Chinese whole as part of a sort of second system. And sadly, this has been uh, increasingly clear now for a number of years, that decisions like uh, this just make it absolutely certain that this isn't a democracy. It doesn't really enjoy any sort of separate, um, it doesn't enjoy any sort of separate jurisdictional uh, capabilities. And the questions now are going to emerge over what does it mean for the rule of law? Because, of course, Hong Kong's uh, liberties and actually its economic prosperity has been based on the idea, uh, a very clear idea, that um, economic liberty and political liberty has enabled people to prosper. If you undermine one, then surely you're going to undermine the other as well, because after all, there's no point in being the richest person in prison. Yeah, and I mean, the links between the UK and Hong Kong are clear and historic. Uh, what, what do you want to hear from the top brass here in terms of res a response to this? Well, to be perfectly honest, we've, we've made our response about as clear as we possibly can already. Um, I, I think what we, need to, what we need to be doing now is not only uh, recognizing that British nationals overseas have rights, and we shouldn't have taken those rights away in 1984. We did. It was a mistake. 
uh, and now we need to restore them. Uh, and I'm very glad that the Home Secretary, Prish Patel, has done that. But we also need to engage now with uh, the WTO and indeed our friends and partners uh, around that table, because the reality is that we're, you know, the separate system, the separate recognition of trade with Hong Kong and uh, China now, frankly, seems uh, less valid. Uh, and the way in which we deal with Hong Kong needs to reflect the fact that it really is a wholly owned uh, part of China. It's not a subsidiary anymore. It's entirely uh, within the main. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. And we start with students, those poor students who've been all locked up in their rooms. They're going to be given a one-week travel window to return home when the national lockdown ends. Hundreds of thousands of them are going to be asked to make their journeys between the 3rd and the 9th of December to limit the spread of COVID-19. This is the university's minister, Michelle Donnellan, who says there'll be also increased testing. We're targeting that testing in some of the most highest risk areas and also looking at those student percentages of most vulnerable. So, for example, BAME students. You can never eliminate the risk. We're in the midst of a pandemic. What we're doing is trying to manage that risk, reduce it and give students the confidence to go home. Michelle Donnellan there. We will be talking much more about testing in just a moment. But, but also, perhaps unsurprisingly, the north of England has been worst hit by the pandemic. A new study has found almost 60 more people per 100,000 died from COVID-19 in the region in the first wave than in the rest of the country. It estimates the cost of that higher mortality rate at almost £7 billion. The mayor of Middlesbrough, Andy Preston, says the findings are no surprise at all. We all knew that after decades of you know, mismanagement and decline, strong action was needed. So now is the time. This is the proof. This is the catalyst. The government's got to take more action, stop messing around, supply the money so the North can grow. And talking of supplying the money, they're spending, the government that is, more than £40 billion on their moonshot mass testing programme. So the £22 billion contract is going to go for a company that can make testing equipment. Another £20 billion is going to go to point-of-care tests and diagnostics gear. And then an extra almost a billion is going to be spent on lateral flow tests. Those are the ones they were trialling in Liverpool, which give you those quick results. So the Department of Health clarifying all of this, saying that the amounts uh, that are spent are the maximum value of the contract. It's not necessarily the final amount that will be spent. But if, if we've learned one thing from this, Roger, it's that costs can go up as well as down. So it's not entirely clear how much money is going to be spent on this moonshot, but hopefully we get something from it. And, uh, well, you remember the various Conservative MPs who are unhappy, remain unhappy at the way all this is going, their own side, in fact, the way the government is directing this. Well, a group have now formed a new campaign to challenge the lockdown. The COVID Recovery Group is mostly made up of politicians who voted against the tough restrictions in the House of Commons last week. So I thought all these groups were always called the um, Study Group or um, you know, European Study Group, China Study Group. 
Research group. Yeah, it's really cute, isn't it? It implies they're all sitting there doing their homework, but actually they're plotting on WhatsApp groups maliciously. Well, maybe not maliciously. That's going a bit far, but there's certainly a lot going on, isn't there? Everybody has their interests these days. Uh, but anyway, let's move it on. Let's talk about vaccines because testing uh, opening up maybe from December, we get a slightly different world as we get some signs. Matt Hancock saying yesterday preparing uh, the NHS for a vaccine coming soon. Uh, joining us now is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Therese, obviously very excited. The big question then is prioritisation. Who gets it first? And you've been writing about this, saying that it may not necessarily be the old and the vulnerable who should be first in line if this is going to be maximum effectiveness. Yeah, it's a a really interesting question. And I think the assumption by many of us is that, you know, you give the vaccine first to the people who are most likely uh, to get a severe case of the disease and to die from it, which is obviously the the, uh, eldest part of the population first, those who have comorbidities, and we'd also give it to sort of doctors and nurses and healthcare workers. Um, But there's an interesting uh, counter theory, um, one laid out in modeling done by three researchers um, at Khalifa University that suggests it's better to prioritize according to the highest number of daily in-person interactions. So people who have more in-person contact are most likely to amplify the virus and lead to the greatest number of deaths. Now, if you take that as uh, as as the guide, you'd want to fa- you'd still want to vaccinate your healthcare workers and your doctors. You may, however, want to prioritize. Um, for example, younger people, those in the hospitality sector, maybe those in, in uh, universities and in education. So this is a debate that we haven't really had in this country. Um, we don't really know the modeling that the government is using when it set its tiers of prioritization. It's set, given us about 10 tiers, which starts with, you know, if you're 80 years old and goes down the, the age uh, the age category also includes some of those who are immunocompromised. Um, but, you know, we don't want to get this wrong because there are a limited number of doses that are going to be available and you want to get as much sort of immunity bang for each vaccine dose that's out there. But I suppose the problem with that, Theresa, I mean, I'm just thinking of, the, of objections along the way. And clearly it's intending to try and get the people who are the vectors for the disease rather than those who actually perhaps suffer from it. But I suppose the point is, who can you get the vaccine most easily to? I mean, I, I suppose we're used to giving vaccines to young people as part of a daily national practice anyway. So perhaps it just makes it easier. Well, there is a question of distribution and efficiency of getting the vaccine out there. We also have to remember that this is a vaccine that needs to be delivered in in double doses. It's a vaccine that has to be transported at minus 70 degrees Celsius. Um, it can be uh, at higher temperatures for the last um, a few days, but that also complicates things. So yes, in many ways, uh, it would make sense to see younger populations, which you know, we're used to vaccinating them, they're more mobile, uh, rolling it out there, seeing how that works, um, as well as trying to target some particularly vulnerable uh, other populations. But again, you know, this is a debate that has to be had. The modeling needs to be trans- made transparent so it can be uh, evaluated by people with, with far more um, you know, mathematical ability than probably you or I have. Uh, and I suppose there's a huge economic slant to this as well. If you vaccinate the young, they're more likely to be active in the workforce as, uh, as compared to older people who may be retired, maybe staying at home. Um, so I presume there's going to be a big chunk of MPs who are very economically minded, that's been their priority throughout this whole crisis, who will jump on this as another vehicle to get the economy going once again. 
Yes, yeah, so, well, I mean, I don't think anyone will dispute that you want to use a vaccine to save lives. And if it, you know, the, the, but the, the question is, do you save more lives by vaccinating uh, further down the age group, more economically active people who are then going to limit the spread and then allow older populations uh, to benefit from that reduced infection rate? Or do you save more lives uh, by initially uh, vaccinating older populations and reducing their, uh, you know, the number of, of, of hospital beds that are taken up. And that's the, you know, that's the key calculation. But clearly, if you reduce infection rates throughout the uh, community, you allow the economy to be opened up more easily. And that's also the objective of the, of the mass testing that we're seeing being rolled out. So a lot of this is also about timing. Uh, we know that there's a period of time before we're going to have enough doses of the vaccine to be very generous in, in how we approach vaccination. So in the meantime, you know, how do you set those priorities to minimize deaths, maximize economic openness, et cetera? Well, let's pick up on the testing issue, Therese, because that is another fascinating one. We know Liverpool, the whole of Liverpool, it seems, uh, is intended to be tested. We've got rapid diagnostic tests. We've got lateral flow tests. Where are we with all this testing? Well, I think this is a, a, a significant breakthrough in the uh, in what's happening in the testing environment, because previously we were relying largely on these PCR tests, which are highly accurate. But uh, the logistics of, uh, of getting to the test, getting the test to the lab, getting the results back is, is a bit complicated. And that has slowed uh, their use uh, across society and has made them sort of of limited effectiveness, let's say. The lateral flow tests, which are quite immediate, are less accurate, but we do we can test an enormous number of people in a very short period of time, as indeed all of Slovakia has just shown, and there were UK observers uh, as Slovakia did mass testing for its population. It has seen since that the infection rates have come down, it identified a number of positive cases, and there is uh, disagreement over whether the testing was, you know, the, the big contributing factor or uh, restrictions and other measures. But this will allow the government to try to bring the number of cases down in those areas like Liverpool, where there are such a high number of cases. I don't think as a national strategy, it's going to be uh, rolled out anytime soon, just because you, you, the number of tests that are required um, it would be enormous. But it will help, for example, get university students home if they can test them before they release them to go home before Christmas. It begs the question, Therese, where all of these countries are going wrong. It's not just England, you know, in Scotland, in Germany, we've seen testing really struggle uh, compared to places like Slovakia, other than the obvious geographical differences. What are they doing right that so many other countries are getting wrong? Well, I mean, one big difference is that if you start at a lower base of infection, it's a lot easier to keep it under control. And the countries that have managed to get on top of the infection rate earlier or roll out testing earlier have had an easier time of it. Once the infection rate uh, rises above a certain level, it's very hard for the, the testing system to keep up and the contact tracing. So we have to also look at the tracing side. And remember, it's test, trace, and isolate. So people are being tested there's some contact tracing, but they're not isolating, which seems to be the case in the UK and a lot of uh, in a lot of areas. Well, then you know you still get um, you still get many vectors of the virus and uh, and it spreads and you get higher rates of hospitalization. So it's it's not one factor. And very briefly, if you would, Therese, at the end, can Joe Biden be Boris Johnson's best friend? 
Oh, I think best friend may be asking a little bit too much, at least right now. And, you know, let's just say a lot depends on what happens in the next few weeks. And, you know, my view, it's pretty binary. Either we get a resolution to the Brexit trade talks that diffuses tensions and allows the White House to kind of kick off that box, or we get confrontation, no deal, um, all sorts of aggravating issues such as the internal markets bill and we get increased tensions and then I think it's going to be very hard for uh, yeah. a new president Biden not to uh, you know not to bring his his the weight of his office to bear on this so I think it goes one of two ways there's just no middle ground Bloomberg Westminster listen weekdays at noon on DAB digital radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.